This podcast is brought to you by the Islamic Center at NYU, located in New York City. For more information, visit our website at www.icnyu.org. Alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ufiruhu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiyati amalina man yahdihillahu falamudillalah wa man yudlil falan tajidalahu waliyam murshida wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharika lah wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa sallam tasliman kathira ya ayyuhallazina amanu taqullaha haqqa tuqatih wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun ya ayyuhannasu taqu rabbakum alladhi khalaqakum min nafsin wahida wa khalaqa minha zawjaha wa batha minhuma rijalan kathiran wa nisaa wa taqullaha alladhi tasaaluna bihi wal arham inna allaha kana alaykum raqiba ya ayyuhallazina amanu taqullaha wa qulu qawlan sadida yuslih lakum a'malakum wa yaghfir lakum dhunubakum wa man yuti'illaha wa rasulahu faqad faza fawzan azima amma ba'd fa inna asdaqal hadithi kitabullahi ta'ala wa khairul hadi hadi muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa sharral umuri muhdathatuha wa kulla muhdathatin bid'ah wa kulla bid'atin dalalah wa kulla dalalatin finnar we praise allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless the family of sayyidina muhammad the sahaba his companions and those who follow them until the end of time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an teaches us the importance of time by swearing by it. He says, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرٍ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِنُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ And oftentimes we find uh, people in the name of religion discouraging a religious community from being aware of the time or the given era that they're in. That's why there's five opinions about what wal-asri means. Some ulama said asr means asru. Sayyidina Muhammad والسلام, the time of the Prophet, which means from the time of his message till the end of time, all the things will impact his ummah. But sometimes we find people discouraging in the name of religion, religious communities understanding and paying attention to the context in which they live. And this is contrary to the Qur'an and contrary to the sunnah of the Prophet For example, in the Qur'an we find the Sahaba asking the Prophet about some of the most egregious things in their society, but they weren't censored for it. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْخَمْرِ وَالْمَيْسِرِ قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ وَإِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُ مِن نَفْعِيهِمَا they ask you, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, what did they ask him about? Gambling and alcohol. Can you imagine today, if you went into a mosque, you said, Urid an as'adak an al khamri wal maysir. I want to ask you about intoxication, intoxicants, and gambling. What does that tell us? First of all, 
it illustrates the magnificent relationship between Satan and Nabi وسلم, and his community that they could ask him not only about explicit religious matters but they could ask him about some of the worst things that were happening in their society. Number two, it tells us that the Qur'an responds to the contextual needs of a community, subhanAllah. And that's why we have a very important axiom in the ulum of Qur'an. That the Qur'an in general should be interpreted in the generality of the words which it sends, not within the particular situation it was sent. This is one of the most important axioms in fatwa, in usul fiqh because it keeps the Qur'an relevant, alhamdulillah, until the end of time. If we were to res restrict every text strictly to the parameters of why it was sent, then that will inhibit the ability of the text to be applicable to today, subhanAllah. So, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْخَمْرِ وَالْمَيْسِرِ قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ And Allah responds. Allah doesn't say to them, you're sinners for asking this question. قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ in both of them is a sin. And a benefit for people. There's a different qira'ah. Qira'ah of Imam Abdullah ibn Kathir al-Makki. قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَثِيرٌ That there's a large sin or that there is a great sin. One meaning like quantifiably large. Like it will hurt you physically as well as spiritually. The other means spiritually. We take another lesson from this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us how to engage any context. There's a great axiom in Islamic law that came from this verse, and that is that the harm should be given preference over the benefit. Maybe somebody you're hanging out with, they want to smoke like a fat blunt, right? You like stuff a lot, bro. That's haram. He's like, but there's some benefit, man. Like I was reading on Google News this morning, you know what I'm saying? Like in between Fortnite, I was like reading that there's like it helps you cognitively. Just look at Snoop Dogg. But we have a very important axiom. That if something has a harm and benefit, the generality within the context is that we look after protecting ourselves from harm first before the gain of a perceivable benefit. That's why Allah says, فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ وَإِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُ مِنْ نَفْعِهِمَا So there's a benefit and there's a harm, but concern is given to the harm. SubhanAllah, in the Qur'an we find the importance of context and understanding the situation. So what I just did now was show you, like the Qur'an answers one of the most dangerous kind of issues that was impacting the Sahaba was alcoholism and gambling and that the Quran puts protecting harm in front of bringing, bringing benefit and I did that to illustrate that some of the most challenging contextual issues that the Sahaba faced the Quran addressed it did not silence them the verse didn't say you're bad for asking the question second if we look towards the end of the Qur'an, we find something really remarkable. And that is that every aspect of the, the culture of the Arabs is somewhat addressed in very unique ways. And again, our concern is not for the particular Arab culture. That's not what we take from the Qur'an. 
What we take from it is the importance of understanding our context, where we are. When I teach tafsir, this is one of the exercises I have my students do. I ask them, like, what are the major contextual challenges of the current situation that you find yourself in? And they always say to me, man, I never knew that I could think this way about the Qur'an. But subhanAllah, look towards the end of the Qur'an, like things that were big in popular culture. You know, if there was a 7th century Arabian Twitter, these are the things that would have been on Twitter that, that time. The first is vehicles. And the Bugatti's of the ancient Arabs were red camels. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالْعَادِيَاتِ الضَّبَحَا This is very unique in Arabic, you lose something in the translation. Al-adiyat is an adjective. The noun that it describes is hidden. There's a chapter in rhetoric we study called Al-Mahdhufat. Things that are hidden in the Qur'an. Why? To, to make the listener like pay attention. Tashwiq al-sami' So sometimes the Qur'an emits words, this is in Arabic a lot, to make sure that we're actually like an active listener. You know? So, those things that race quickly, what are those things? And one of the reasons that things are, are, are not mentioned is because they're so known to the listener that you don't need to mention it. So here, of course, it means al-khayl, al-ibl, al-adiyat, either horses or camels. The point is, Allah subhanahu wa here is using the most popular form of transportation and using it to teach a lesson about being a good believer because a camel doesn't need a lot of water, a believer doesn't need a lot of Yeezys. A camel can travel a long ways without need. The believer can travel through this dunya without getting too caught up. Subhanallah. That's why the Prophet ﷺ, when Sayyidina Ali, he asked him like, what if we guide someone to Islam? He said, خَيْرُ لَكَ مِنْ حُمْرِ النِّعْمِ It will be better for you than red camels. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. One time, a student, he said, I don't understand red camels. I said, like, a red Tesla. He's like, okay, now I got it. But the point is, the Quran is using something which is contextually popular to the Arabs to teach them. Because last week, we talked about is faith as a transformative reality. Like, if I'm not able to contextualize faith, how can it be transformative? If it's simply, as I said last time, an opportunity for romanticized historic reflection, Andalus, Andalus. Wow, Spain is so awesome. If it was so awesome, why is it gone? But no one wants to ask that question. The second is we said that when faith becomes just like a historic relic in my house, a cultural norm, you know, like just put the Quran in some nice wrapping, put it on the highest bookshelf in the house, alhamdulillah, everything will work itself out. But faith is about transformation, about a constant desire to improve and address my weaknesses. And one of the things that helps us live a transformative faith is that when we're able to contextualize the demands and prohibitions of faith within our context. Another example, one of the, if you survey Jahili poetry, the poetry of the Arabs, the mixtapes, of the Arabs before the time of the Prophet you'll find that there was something that they always talked about and that was the ilaf of the Quraysh like over and over and over again there was this kind of amazement at how the Quraysh and anyone, anyone that's been to Mecca has experienced this like 
how could they survive? How could Mecca be such a cosmopolitan city in the middle of a valley surrounded by nothing? Biwadin ghayri di dhar'in. As Sayyidina Ibrahim said, I have left my family in a barren valley. There's nothing there. So the, the ancient Arabs would talk about ilaf of the Quraysh. So how does the Quran take this kind of poppin' social concern and flip it on its head and use it to teach them li-ilafi Quraysh? And if you understand Arabi, you'll see why now the chapter begins lam lam ta'lil li-ilafi Quraysh because of or due to their security. As though you get lined up at the barber shop and you hear li-ilafi Quraysh, and if you're the barber, you would say, man, I always wondered about that. That's the feeling of the verse. When you translate it, it loses something, and especially this is something that should be talked about, the Anglosation of the translation of the Qur'an. So in the attempt to sound like Shakespeare or Chaucer, perhaps you bleached it, being the interesting verb, of its true emotional feeling. But the feeling is like, you know, because this is why the Quraysh are like this, and you're like, man, I always wanted to know about that. The third thing that was important to the Arabs, especially you find it amongst their MCs, their poets, was their ability to talk about where they're from by using landmarks. So I can't read too much Ibn al-Qais here, if anyone knows what Ibn al-Qais is like super filthy. But we had to learn him because Imr al-Qais as Sayyidina Umar said, Alaykum bi diwan al-Arab fa inna fiha tafsiru kitabikum. You have to learn these ancient poems because this has the meanings of the words of the Qur'an. Imr al-Qais, he said, Qifa nabki min dhikri habibin wa manziri bisikhti liwa bayna al-dakhuri fahawmari. Imr al-Qais is like bragging about where he's from. And he's talking about his ex-girlfriend. And he says, you know, between Hawmul, Hawmul is like some cliffs, some hills. Wasikhti is another like area that has these unique rocks. As though he's saying, Flatbush Ave, in Morsi. Very similar style that you find in contemporary, well, in, in real hip hop, which is more hip now than hop. But old MCs like Biggie and Jay Z and these people, Rakim, MC Light. They would give you the portrait of where they're from without telling you where they're from. This is something that ancient Arab poems would do, poets would do. They would try to tell you like, hey, these are the symptoms of my area. Now you go, subhanAllah, one of my teachers told me, look, the same style is used. This is talking about prophets. Watin was Zaytun. Teen and Zaytun, Sayyidina Isa. وَطُورِ سِينِينَ سَيْدْنَ مُوسَى وَهَذَا الْبَلَدِ الْأَمِينَ سَيْدْنَ مُحَمَّدْ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ The point is, as I detail this, is we get uncomfortable because nothing makes a person more uncomfortable when they are compelled to see the true responsibility that religion brings to their faith. It's easy just to come to Juma. It's easy just to be like, Alhamdulillah, MashaAllah, SubhanAllah, Allahu Akbar. And they have like anti-black attitudes. It's like easy to be a Muslim and say like, yeah, we should all pay zakat and I'm a gentrifier. It's easy to be a Muslim and, you know, talk about like Fir'aun and Trump and then I'm abusing people in my house. But that's not religion. That's hypocrisy. And if we don't compel ourselves to ask ourselves what are the contextual needs of where we are, 
then we fail to perform the prophetic duty of what this community has been commanded to do. So I just made a very important point, inshallah, that sometimes religious people, in the name of piety, completely distance us from understanding the context where we live. Context is immediately seen as an enemy to faith. But look at Sayyidina Hudayfa, who said, people would always ask the Prophet about good stuff, and I would ask him about bad stuff so I could protect myself from it. How do I protect myself? Then I gave an example from the Quran where they asked the Prophet about some of the worst possible things that were going on. And these were Muslims that asked him this. These were not non-Muslims. The Sahaba asked him about alcohol, intoxicants. Because a khamar is not just alcohol. Khamar from khimar. We wear, people wear a khimar, it's like hijab. Because the khamar is anything that covers the mind. So they ask you about intoxicants. And they ask you about gambling. And then I gave particular examples of this just in the end of the Quran. This could be an entire, entire lecture throughout the day that touches on the sociological issues that face the Arabs, touches on the cultural phenomena that, that touch the Arabs. And he even illustrated some of the usages to attract them by engaging the instrument of culture. The same thing with religious issues. Al-bayina, again, is an adjective for a noun that's not mentioned, meaning the prophet that you've been waiting on. So Muhammad is defined with mu'arraf, with the arif and lam, because this is the bayina you've been talking about, is the messenger of Allah. And if you read the rest of the Quran, the last of the Quran, why is it always touching on social issues? Why? Why is it always touching? Because these are the things that were important to the society. She will say, why was I killed? That were important to the society that the Prophet lived in. I say that because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commissioned us to be a prophetic community. And the Prophet wept when he found out that we would be commissioned with his responsibility. When Sayyidina Ubay ibn Ka'b sat with Sayyidina Muhammad and the Prophet asked him, read the Quran to me. And he said, how could I read to you? And it was sent to you. He said, I love to hear the Quran. Then he began Surah Nisa, Ya Wahida. Until he reached the verse, فَكَيْفَ إِذَا جِئْنَا مِنْ كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ بِشَهِيدٍ وَجِئْنَا بِكَ عَلَى هَؤُلَاءِ شَهِيدًا How will it be, O Muhammad, when we bring against every community its prophet to bear witness against it? And we bring you as a witness against your community. And the prophet said, Hasbuk, Hasbuk, like it's enough, stop, stop. Sayyidina Ubay said, فَإِذَا عَيْنَاهُ تَدْرِفًا I saw him weeping. And when the Prophet said to the Sahaba and said to us as an extension of his community, Muslim in Imam Muslim's collection, you are the witnesses of God on the face of the earth. In Sayyidina Musa, when he said, Oh Allah, who are these people? 
this ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, the answer was people who are not prophets who have prophetic responsibility. And Sayyidina Musa said, Allahumma ja'alni min hadhi al-ummah. Oh Allah, make me from them. Another example as we finish the first part of the khutbah is that the Prophet ﷺ was not alone. This is now the importance of the Sahaba and this is the importance of the different backgrounds that each Sahaba has, whether it was socially, whether it was financially, whether it's related to age. If you look at the earliest people to embrace Islam, if you're into social organizing, you can certainly appreciate how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala furnishes the Prophet with the tools he needs to impact society. You find a youth, Sayyidina Ali. You find a woman, Sayyidina Khadija radiallahu anha. You find an embondaged person, Sayyidina Bilal. And you find the 1%, the rich, Sayyidina Abu Bakr. So the first four people to embrace Islam represent every social demographic you find in Mecca. And that's why Allah says, We helped you with divine aid, but we also aided you with this group of people around you. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that's why Ibn Sa'd, he mentions in his seerah, that Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he would go to Uqadh, which is the fair, again, the Prophet doesn't ignore the current cultural phenomena, the Coachella of the Arabs is happening. And they go. And they're there. But they're there not to, you know, do some ratchet wildness stuff. They're there to talk about Allah. But when the Prophet goes to this fair, there's so many different tribes, so many different communities. He needs assistance. And his greatest helper in this moment was Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Sadiq radiallahu anhu. Because Abu Bakr Sadiq, because of his family, because of his education, he was the most knowledgeable of the Ansab of the Arabs. He knew every tribe. So Ibn Sa'd, he mentions that before. He's like the press man of the Prophet That before the Prophet would go and meet with certain tribes, he would ask Abu Bakr, who's Banu Ghaffar? And Abu Bakr would say, Banu Ghaffar has 16 grandfathers from Yemen, 17 grand grandfathers from Yarmouk. This one speaks this dialect. There was a massive tragedy, a camel killed this one's uncle. So whatever you do, don't talk about camels. And the Prophet would come into these gatherings and he would be well aware of these tribes to the point that they were actually enamored and touched by the Prophet's awareness. Now we can look at our lives and say, am I aware of the history of the neighborhood I ran in? Am I aware of the political history of the community I live in? Am I able to speak to the issues in the borough that I reside in? Or am I just passing through? The Prophet not only invests in culture, he also invests in understanding the people. That's why Allah says, Li ta'arafu. We made a mistake after 9-11. Many people said the West needs to learn about Islam. Ta'aruf doesn't mean one needs to learn about the other. It's a reciprocal called mushtaraka, which means we need to learn about each other. That there is a joint engagement. So last week we talked about Islam as a transformative faith 
And now in the 2020 series that we're doing here, because it's a very dangerous phenomena, as Muhammad Asad said, when Islam simply becomes a relic, when Islam simply becomes an opportunity for romanticized, irrational, historical thought, whereas as we noted that Islam is about immediate transformation. And one of the tools that will help us live a transformative faith is being able to contextualize the message and meaning of the Qur'an and the hadith in my life. One of my greatest teachers ever from Fallujah, from Iraq, great scholar of usul al-fiqh, Sheikh Taha, who passed away a few years ago. He used to say to me, يجب عليك أن تجمع بين قراءة القرآن وقراءة الأكوان. He said to me, you have to join two things, the reading of the Qur'an and the reading of the situation and place that you live in. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yu'teena al-hikmah. Ask Allah to give us wisdom. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open up our chest to the Qur'an. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us think in a more constructively critical way. Aqulu qawri hadha. We send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger Muhammad وسلم, upon his family, his companions and those who follow them until the end of time. Our beloved messenger Muhammad وسلم, who extended the contours of faith to be infinite. When he said, He said that the entire earth was made a pure place of prayer for me. There is a lot of beautiful intersectionality there that anywhere you are on the face of the earth, any act you do on the face of the earth, that became your personal musalla, subhanallah. That moment, that situation, became an opportunity for that piece of earth, yashhad laka indallah, to bear witness for you in Allah, for, in front of Allah. And that's why in the end of Surah, uh, uh, that the earth will actually bear witness for the believer. That being said, inshallah, next time we'll continue and we'll begin to unpack the era that we live in. This is the postmodern era. Of course, modernity and pre-modernity are something we should be at least somewhat familiar with. Modernity comes after pre-modernity. Pre-modernity is a time where revelation and faith, by default, form the global outlook of a human being. A totalitizing ideology. Allah created me. Allah created the earth. The dunya is temporary. I'm going to meet Allah. Allah sent the books and the prophets. And then my job is to adhere to live as best I can to those things while being good to the people and the world around me. That's pre-modernity. Modernity replaces revelation with science. And now pre-modernity, as one of the great philosophers said, now pre-modernity has replaced science with the individual. So we find notions of identity, notions of whims and feelings when someone is telling us, you know, if you have the coronavirus, it's okay, go to work like our president did. That obviously is a indicator of postmodernity. White supremacy is perhaps one of the greatest gifts of postmodernity to the world because it says that being white makes everything right. But of course, as Muslims, we shouldn't think that we're not free of these challenges. 
And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَعْبُرُ اللَّهَ عَلَى حَرْفِ That there are some people who worship Allah on the harf. Harf here doesn't mean harf or jar for you Arabic aficionados. What it means is that a person is munharif, that there are two sides, and one side they're here, one side they're here. When things are going their way, they're here. When things aren't going their way, they're here. What it means is that a person has regulated their religious life to material utility. So however my material world is going, like Joel Osteen, the most irresponsible, unfounded, theological uh, teaching I've ever witnessed in my life is Joel Osteen, who tells people, Jesus loves you because you have a mansion. Or, wow, life feels good, so God is happy with you. This is counter to Islam. Allah said, they became happy, and we gave them everything in the dunya, till they forgot us, and then we seized them. Our theology doesn't strictly regulate my, my piety and my, my nearness to God based on like how my Bitcoin is doing. It's a lot deeper than that. So we'll talk about that inshallah next time because this is the context of where we are. Where instead of the Quran being revelation or physics being revelation, now it's me. Every single person is their own walking Quran, receiving a message from Jibreel. This is how I feel, so it must be the truth. And the Prophet said, when you see an era where everybody thinks that their opinion is correct, meaning an unfounded opinion, right, based on hawa, he said, be careful. So we'll talk about that next time. But unfortunately today, we want to talk about the coronavirus. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cure those people who have been afflicted by this and to protect people who have not been afflicted by it. But there are a few things we can think about, especially during this time. Number one is that we understand that happiness and pain and sorrow, kullu min indillah. And whatever befalls us, may Allah protect us, la tu'akhidna, may Allah not, you know, test us, la tahamilna ma la taqatanana bih. With what we can't handle, it's important to realize that in health, in sickness, there is reward, and in sickness, subhanAllah, there is a greater reward. The second is that the Prophet ﷺ, he taught us some things that we can do to try to repel sickness from our lives. For example, he said in the authentic hadith وسلم, that you can repel illness from your sick ones بِالصَّدَقَةِ with charity. Last night I was with a brother, subhanAllah, I was at work and I got out late, mashallah, and we were walking and this woman she, you know, as we see constantly in New York, people are in need, subhanAllah. May Allah facilitate their affairs for them and make us people of warm hearts. And she said, you know, give me, give me, give me. And then, you know, we kept walking. And then she said, I just need food, man. So when you say that to a Muslim, we know like food is something that we actually consider as like it's a right of people. So he turned around and he said, you need what? She said, I need food. I was like, man, I got some diapers to change. You know, I have baby brain right now. He's like, no, no, man, come with me. So he went with her. He bought her a sandwich at one of the Muslim brothers' bodegas, alhamdulillah. And then she wasn't Muslim. So he said, hold on. I said, what? As she was eating, he said, can you do me a favor? She said, sure. He said, can you raise your hands? She raised her hands and he said, can you repeat after me? She said, yeah. He said, oh, Allah. 
And she's like, what? <laughs> he said, oh Allah. She said, it's really beautiful, man. She's like, how can I pray for you? Like, I'm, I'm a drunk, man. He's like, no, no, but now, inshallah, your prayer is accepted. She didn't know what inshallah meant. And she's like, what? He's like, just repeat after me. And then she said, oh Allah. And she said, oh Allah, protect this man's baby, my baby. Then I started getting like, <laughs> I mean, and he's like, and protect the Muslims and accept this charity. And then she was like, she was like, Allah, Allah, right? It was beautiful, right? And then he said to me this hadith. He said, all these people around us that are in need, this is an opportunity perhaps, not only to serve them, to better their life, but to ask them to make dua for us. I was like, it's really cool, mashallah. So one of the things we can do is charity. You know, secret charity. That charity, that old grandma charity and grandpa charity that no one knows about, asking Allah to protect us. The third thing is that we have to be here for each other, so we should stay in touch with one another, make sure if anyone, God forbid, is impacted by this difficulty, we're there to provide food for them or their families or emotional support. The last, and this is coming from Imam Khalid himself, may Allah bless him, he's traveling today. Uh, we ask Allah to bless him and his wife and his children. Is that reassured that the IC is going to be here for you? Uh, we'll continue programming unless otherwise notified by authorities and that we are a place that you can find inshallah comfort and be assured inshallah that we'll do our best for one another. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who sends all the debt to send the dawa. As the Prophet said there is no illness except there it's secure. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us to find inshallah as a global community the cure for this really difficult challenge. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us embrace faith as a transformative process we ask Allah subhanahu wa to help us use these days to tighten up perhaps relationships that have fallen apart, to forgive people, to become more aware of Allah, to take benefit from this pressure and heightening, heightening our awareness that Allah subhanahu wa qahiru fawqa ibari. We ask Allah subhanahu wa to help us be allies to people who are impacted by grave injustices as we saw last night in Alabama. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us be allies to the environment and the world around us. We pray for those brothers and sisters who may be overcome with anxiety because of the virus. It's okay. Doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're anxious. That's being human. And know that we love you and we care for you and we embrace you sincerely, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us to be a reaffirming force in your life. And may Allah remove the anxiety and the fear from all of us. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless Shaykh Khaled, Shaykh Fayaz, Shaykh Aisha, our sister, uh, the Modira, the administrator, Amira. We ask Allah to bless all of our students and to facilitate their things for them that they need done. Rabbana atina fid dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina dhaab al-nar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yasur ikhwanana wa akhawatina bil-hind. Ask Allah to help and protect our brothers and sisters in India. As we ask Him to help the people in Palestine and Kashmir and Africa and all over the globe. ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد ثريتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين. If you enjoyed or benefited from this podcast, donate and support the Islamic Center at NYU at www.icnyu.org/donate.